Minnow Middle got you down. Crush your sugar cravings with delicious all-natural Bossa Bars for menopause. Created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the pause. Try them at BossaBars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we have on Mary Laura Philpot, who is a best-selling author, I'd say, and you might be familiar with her name because she wrote in 2019 the bestseller, I Miss You When I Blink. And I read that. I really enjoyed it. So when we found out she was having a new book come out called Bomb Shelter, we were excited to have a conversation with her. So as I mentioned, she is an author of national bestsellers. She writes in essay form. So a lot of this book, Bomb Shelter, is a memoir, almost an essay form, specifically about a traumatic event that happened with her son. How she viewed the world a little bit differently after her teenage son had a medical crisis and wrote it in essay forms that are really relatable to midlife women, which she is one of them. I felt like, and I told her this, that sometimes she was just like reading my thoughts. Um, It's so interesting how women of our age, especially if we're mothers, had these same thoughts about our children and, and the issues that surround us. She is in the sandwich generation, just like many of us. She's taking care of children, And she's also taking care of her parents and things that are happening and and things that a lot of us are facing right now. But she puts it in just such interesting format and just her essay type of writing is so wonderful. And just you will hear in the conversation with her uh, some reason behind why she named this book or why she titled it Bomb Shelter. So that is very interesting as well. Yes, it's actually Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, and it comes out April 12th, so this week you can go check it out, and it really looks, she looks at motherhood, she looks at daughterhood, like you said, caregiving for both children and parents, and life and death, but in a way that she's just really relatable to us, and it's also kind of appropriate to bring up this point that Mother's Day is not too far away, guys. And we will be doing another giveaway, but with a host of different products. So we will be working with five or six brands to come up with some really great products for your Mother's Day enjoyment. And if you can't figure out what you want, we've got it taken care of. So if you go on hotflasheschooltopics.com, you will see coming up in the next week or two, what will be going into that basket of goodies for Mother's Day. And if you want to catch the video of this episode, please go to vitalc.com. We are working with vitalc.com now and our future episodes will be on vitalc.com. And also they have some great other features on vitalc like travel. They have some great cruises coming up with special like excursions for vitalc members and It's a free website. You can just go on and check out. They have blogs and lots of information. But of course, the best thing they have is hot flashes and cool topics (laughs) videos. So you definitely want to check that out. And we're going to let Mary take over. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, everybody. We have Mary Laura Philpott on. And many of you probably know her from the book, I Miss You When I Blink, because 
that was a book club book. Colleen and I had read that <laughs> two or three years ago for a book club. And she has a new book out. It is called Bomb Shelter. And it is a collection of essays. Colleen, if you're watching the video, Colleen is holding up the book right there. And the turtle, you'll, you have to read the book to find out the whole story about that. Frank the turtle. Frank. Oh my goodness. It was so great. And you have been writing essays for a long time for several things, New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, Real Simple, lots of things. And I just have to say, I know, Colleen, you probably feel the same way I do as being a woman of my age. Um, I feel like you were inside my thoughts or heads just by your um, observations. (laughs) But thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And I like the way you said that. I do. I, I do hear that sometimes. And I've heard it said other and stranger ways. I, somebody once said, I feel like you downloaded my brain. <laughs> I would never download someone's brain without asking first. Thank you. Thank you so much. But I'd probably allow it because it's very much the <laughs> right, same. Exactly. Although it might be a scary place. I don't it know that you want to be in our brain. You don't want to be in my brain. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Rich and I have read both of your books and the second book being Bomb Shelter. And you write in essay form, distinct as... My first question is, that's a hard way to write when you're thinking, how am I going to incorporate this into a book, especially a memoir? So how do you do that? It's, it's So I, a lot of people do think that's a harder way to do it. To me, it's an easier way to put a memoir together because when... The way my brain works, and, and you know, I don't know if this is similar to yours, if I've downloaded this part of your brain or not, but I have all these little stories sitting next to each other. It's like a really jam-packed file cabinet or card catalog for those of us who remember the old-timey libraries. Um, and so when I start thinking along a certain thread, for example, in Bomb Shelter, I'm thinking a lot about the question of if I can't keep everyone I love safe all the time, then what is the point of anything I'm doing? And is it all futile? And is this all just this terribly depressing fact of not being able to keep people safe? When I start thinking along that thread, my brain starts serving up stories. It's like, oh, remember that time you were in second grade and that girl got kidnapped? Poof, there's a story. Remember that time, um, you know, you found the dead turtle at the end of your driveway? Poof, there's a story. And so my brain thinks in terms of short memories and stories. So putting those together to build a memoir to me is actually the most natural way to do it. Um, It also plays to a strength that I've just sort of developed over my career. Even before I was writing memoir type essays, I was writing essays on topics and subjects for newspapers. And so my brain thinks in terms of if you have to wrestle with this question or this story or this issue, and you've got 2,500 words what are you going to say? So there's a, there's a part of my brain that is automatically putting that boundary on every story. And it, for me, it pushes me toward clarity, I think, in a more expedient way than I might find clarity if I had no boundary. If you just said, you have 250 pages, go. I don't even know if I would know where to start. But if you say, all right, you've got 2,500 words, what are you going to say in that amount of time? I can get going. I can get my engine going. Yeah, just a little bit of boundary. So I totally understand. And I do think you probably have downloaded my brain because between Colleen and I, I think I'm the storyteller of past events and yes. she's very methodical. Her memory is much better than <laughs> but, mine. But it's out there and it is scattered. So I mean, 
That is, I think you've downloaded it. I'm curious, um, you start out the book with a really very frightening event and it happened to your son. How did your son feel about you including that in the book? Well, and talk, can you talk about what it is? Yeah, talk about yeah. what happened. So to, to tell this larger story about having this fear about my loved ones being out in the world and my not being able to protect them all and keep them safe forever. Um, one of the stories that I needed to put right up front in the book was um, the story about waking up one morning at 4 a.m. and finding my teenage son having a seizure on the bathroom floor. He was unconscious. We were awakened by the sound of his body hitting the floor, which is a really loud sound when it's a teenage boy. He was the size of a full-grown man. Um, and it was a terrifying, like, you know, what's going on? 911 call. It's all happening in a blur, yet it all just gets absolutely frozen in my mind as a memory. I mean, I have snapshots, vivid images and sounds from that morning locked in my memory. That goes up toward the front of the book because it set a clock ticking. He was midway through high school at that point. And so when that happened, we went to the hospital, we came home with the diagnosis of epilepsy. And I just kept thinking, I have two years to get him okay before he leaves. And then he's out there where I can't take care of him. And I already had been feeling that clock ticking. I already, you know, both my children were in high school. I have a daughter who's a little younger. I was already feeling like this tick, tick, tick. They're getting further away from me and soon I won't be able to protect them at all. So that went up front because it set a whole new urgency to this line of thinking. And he and I talked a lot about you know, why that might be part of the book and was he okay with that? He is a very gracious, very generous, lovely, loving human being. Um, and at no point did he have any sort of problem with, in fact, he was like, yeah, you should do that. You should put my picture in there. Cause I'm pretty cute. If people see me, that could help. <laughs> he is adorable and very handsome, but I protect his privacy probably more than he does. And I am not going to put his picture in the book or his name. You'll notice I don't name my children right. Right. in this book. Yeah. And you can tell the story perfectly well without naming them or even yeah. giving them a name. You, you don't know, need, you don't, you don't need their names because it's not, you know, this is not a book about my family. It's a book right. about being me specifically, mm -hmm. but also being a person more generally and feeling this sense of looking for a sense of safety and comfort and even joy in a world where things are so scary all the time. And I, I don't need to tell their story to tell that story. I just need a few pieces where their stories overlap with mine. And that's where I had to get permission. Um, and I also think not using their names allows for a little bit of you know, if I'm telling a story and I say, and then my daughter said, and I, and my daughter did, and you're reading it, your brain is hearing my daughter, right. my son. And that's a way in which you can maybe connect with it a little Absolutely. bit more. So it has, it has that sort of side effect as well. I was just going to say that because by not naming them, I know in my mind when I was reading it and you detail it very specifically, the event, you immediately put your child in the place and say, how would I react to my child having that seizure? And you go right into mom mode. So I think if anything, it makes it more relatable by not specifying your child's name. And like you said, it's really not necessary. It, it's, yeah. it sets off a sequence of events where you go into mom mode, which we can all relate to. And I, I love the story of him going to camp 
And they were like, oh, you know, he has to have a year of no seizures. And you were like, that's not going to happen. That's his one. I've taken everything else away from him. He and wouldn't every one of us just say, "Okay, I will do whatever it takes to get this child, even though I'm afraid for him to go. I mean, everybody has their thing that's um, that's just their thing, their most important thing. And to him at that age, at that time, it was the summer camp that he's gone to his whole life and he was working his way up toward being a counselor and he had already lost a lot. You know, after you've had a seizure, you can't drive for six months until you're steady on your medicine. Um, A lot of other things in his life had changed and he had just rolled with it all so graciously. And it was like, just if we could just find a way for him to have this one thing that means so much to him. And, and luckily we had, you know, a lot of wonderful people helping us do that. His doctor, his neurologist at Vanderbilt, who was wonderful, um, was like, all right, tell me what you need. What do I need to put in this letter? Because absolutely, yes, he can go to camp. There's no reason children with epilepsy cannot go to summer camp. You know, you should not send them off swimming by themselves with no supervision, but no one should be swimming alone with no one else around. So, you know, yeah, that was a tough one. And then the part too, where when you're expecting and the the things that parents look forward to when they feel like they're starting to lose their child, not lose their child forever, but age out. Yeah. Age out. Empty nest. It feels like, it feels like that. Age out of a a stage. And you go to camp to get him and you've got it in your head that, Oh, I've got four weeks. And then those surprises, those things as parents where they just are like, well, no, we had something else in mind. And then it's just uh, you're, ta- you're talking about the part where he was at, at camp and we thought he was going for one single session, but then they offered him a job at the end. And he was like, no, I get yes. to stay all summer. Yeah. And I was like, but, uh, but we had all these like final summer at home things planned. And no, that, yeah. that is, that I, I find is the state of parenting the older children get. And the more they start to ease into adulthood, the mm. fewer things you can count on happening the way you expect, because it's truly less and less a partnership of our lives together as a family. Look, we all agree on these things and more they're, they've gone off and become a person and they have a life and they've got to make decisions that are sometimes going to be different. So yeah, whew, that's hard. One of the interesting, there were a lot of interesting things in the book, but one of the interesting things that I thought that you brought up was uh, you were talking about a woman who was taking a college tour with her daughter and they're they're telling the story of how she kind of lost it on the quad but you reference my angelou's quote which is when someone shows you who they are believe them and you're saying yes but what happens if you see them at a time they're not at their best whether it's stress anxiety just life in general. Can you talk a little bit about that thought process in writing? One of the things that I do sort of periodically throughout this book, just for like a brief second at a time, as I pull back and I look at whatever scene we're in from afar and go, what would this look like from afar? For example, in that, that chapter earlier where I, I find my son on the floor, I say, if you, he is my child, but if you saw him walking down the street from afar, you would say, there goes a man because he's man-shaped. I wanted to be conscious kind of throughout this book of all the ways that we make decisions based on what we know about what's going on, but other people make assumptions about what they can see from afar. Um, And that story that you're talking about is a prime example. I was on a college tour um, with one of my kids and the admissions director or admissions tour guide or whatever was, was 
kind of doing that cautionary tale that they all do where they're like, remember parents, <laughs> you know, they're like, don't be terrible. Don't make your children go on tours. They don't want to go on This is not about you. Don't make them go to your alma mater and do things, you know, basically just don't be overbearing monsters, parents, please. And the cautionary tale that he told us one time, we had this mom on campus with her daughter and the daughter clearly didn't want to be here. And it was so obvious that the mom was just forcing her to be here. And on the tour, at some point, they got separated from the rest of the group. And when we caught up with them, they were having a screaming match on the quad. And everyone in our tour group, like, gasped, you know, like, oh, screaming on the quad of a college. That's atrocious. Who would ever? <laughs> and in my mind, I thought, I, I mean, you know, dial up any moment in my life where I have been just frazzled and at my worst. And if that's all you saw of me, I would be a cautionary tale. There are so many. They are countless. And I don't just mean split second ones. There are years of my life where I have not been at my best. And if you looked at me just at that year, you would go, well, see, she's an ob obviously a terrible person. And so in that, in that chapter, it's the one chapter of the book that kind of veers into fiction because I take a few pages and I imagine the life of this mother and this daughter and what brought them to this day together and what might have made them both feel kind of raw and frazzled and why they might have had a minute where they yelled bad words at each other just as someone else walked by. Um, I feel like if we could all grant each other just a little more grace and do a little less assuming that what we see from afar is what we assume it is, the world would be a gentler place. And, and one of the reasons I'm constantly trying to find ways the world could be a gentler place is because my people are going out into that world. So I'm constantly going, what might make the world a little safer? <laughs> and one of those things is just everybody be gentler with everybody. Right. You know, my daughter always says, you don't know their life. You know, if, if like passing judgment on something. And she'd always say that to me. No, you just, you don't know their life. And I'm like, you're right. I don't know their life. I don't know what's happening. And you use that when driving, uh, situations with driving in the book. And I'm, and there's time, it's so funny. There's times where I'm like, I'm not in a hurry anywhere. Go ahead, go ahead. You know, I'll let people, and then it's like, <laughs> I've got to be somewhere, get out of my way, you know? Yeah. But yeah. it's just situations like that. But you're right, just being kinder in everyday life. Because it is frightening right now what we are sending our children, our loved ones into. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that is, that's just very and scary. And that kind of leads us into the second, really the, not second, but the end, end chapters of your book. Because they are um, set in the beginning of the pandemic where you swear yes. you had the very first case in Tennessee. And <laughs> we're not going to fight you on that. It very well could have been. It, that is such a, a, um, an important I did to keep in mind that the world is so stressed right now that if you look at the reactions of people in their fight or flight mode, they're tired. Yep. And so how important was it for you to reflect the, you know, like what's happening now in your book? I mean, literarily speaking, I did not want to include the pandemic in this story because to me, at least at the time, I felt like that is such a specific right now reference. It's like including a song that's on the radio that dates it. And I didn't want in a few years, people to be like, oh, pandemic, I'm trying to put that out of my mind. I don't want to read about that again. But um, this is a true story. This is the problem with memoir. It's not like a novel where you can be like, in my world, there was no pandemic. 
in our world, there was, and that's the world that I'm writing from. And because I made the choice to end the book where I did, and I'll speak a little bit about that. I'm, you know, I'm writing about the whole feeling of uncertainty. And when you're in this bubble of, I don't know what's going to happen next to portray that bubble authentically, I couldn't end it with any sort of, yay, it's all wrapped up and we figured it out. And there are all the answers because I'm writing about the feeling of uncertainty. So where I ended it was um, kind of held in this brief, miraculous balance where some of the things that have been in upheaval are temporarily at peace. And some of the things that I know are coming that are going to be rough haven't started yet. Um, But I'm absolutely not at a point of like, everything's all wrapped up and I figured out how to fix it. So I was writing kind of into the present tense. The book starts out with, here's something that happened a few years ago. And it ends with, I am now putting my pen down right now on this table. Therefore, I couldn't leave the pandemic out because the pandemic was happening while I was holding that pen at my table. So I had to include it. But I do feel like, like you said, I mean, it did thematically work. You know, it, it, it played right into what I was writing about, which is the feeling of uncertainty and the feeling of, okay, how do we, how do we get up and make decisions and um, decide where to put our energy and where to put our souls and what mood to be in when we do not know what this day is going to bring or this week or this year, or God knows what next pandemic. Um, so it worked thematically, but I was sort of mad that it came in and crashed. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the book is called Bomb Shelter, a mm-hmm. memoir and essays is love, time and other explosives, which is a really cute way to describe it. But, you know, the title Bomb Shelter kind of plays back into something that your dad did that you had no idea about. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, it's actually not funny because there's nothing at all funny about this, but um, with the situation in Ukraine being what it is, I've had a couple people say to me recently, like, whoa, it must be a weird time to be promoting a book called Bomb Shelter. I bet, I bet you wish you had picked a different metaphor. And, and what people don't know who haven't read the book is there is, I didn't just go like bomb shelter. It's kind of like something we all wish for. There's an actual bomb shelter in this book. The Cold War plays a role in this book. Um, I found out just a few years ago, actually, when I was in my early 40s, just because it was dropped casually into a phone conversation by my dad, that when we lived outside Washington, D.C., when I was a toddler, he he was in the Army, he was a doctor, and one of his jobs was to be part of the super, super top secret staff of one of the government's secret nuclear bunkers. Um, which now people know about this stuff has been declassified. Um, there's one under the Greenbrier Hotel. There's one, the one where my dad worked, uh, that was in a book by Garrett M. Graff, who's a great writer. He had a book called Raven Rock. And that's how it came up. My dad called me one day. And this is when I used to work for a bookstore. And he loved to have me order his books because he liked to show that he was cool with shopping local. And so he called and he was like, hey, can you send me that book called Raven Rock? And I, you know, I had heard of it because, it, you know, had come out to great fanfare. And I was like, oh yeah, the one about the the secret nuclear bunkers? Oh, that sounds right up your alley. And he was like, oh yeah, because it reminds me of when I worked there. And <laughs> I was just like, when you what? And it, I mean, first of all, it filled in so many blanks about my childhood that I had sort of never questioned. But now I, now I look at it and go, 
okay, well, th- this does make some things make sense. But it also made me understand my dad in a different way and, and feel a closeness with my own young parents in a way that I, you know, you don't understand your parents when you're a child, but when you get older and you kind of time travel back as if they are your peers, you can understand them so much better. So suddenly I understood things like when I was in college, I used to get these care packages from my dad that were just boxes of canned food, nothing else in there, no note, not like a normal (laughs) care package like people get from their parents with like brownies and a magazine, just cans, cans, cans of canned food. And, And I would bring them back to my dorm and my roommate and I would laugh every time. We actually called them bomb shelter boxes because we were like, this is so hilarious. It's like he thinks we're building some sort of stockpile. And now I get it. Like in his mind, the way time goes so fast when you're a parent, in his mind, the time between that job he had where it was his job to listen out for a siren that told him to go down into a bunker and do a test run for the end of the world. And the time when I went off to college, and that's the phase I'm in now with my children leaving the nest, that must have felt like a day. So of course he was sending me boxes of canned food in his own, you know, weird my dad way. This was something he could do. Well, let's just make sure she's got non-perishable food items. That was his love language. That was his love language, (laughs) the non-perishable food. So there is, um, bomb shelter is not just a metaphor in this book. It is, the book is named Bomb Shelter and and there's a real bomb shelter. That was wild reading that book with that part was just wild. But another point you have with your parents in the book is something that so many people in our age group are going through is having parents that are are not maybe something's happening to happening to them health wise and your father you know just which your father I was when you said he works at that hospital I was like he is he still working oh and, yes wow <laughs> I think that he will he, he's, a, he's a very he's a very specialized surgeon he loves what he does he's very very good at it and he will work until someone you know like tackles like, him and drags him out that's his his number one thing he loves it but you talked about that situation and that has happened to Colleen and I both where a parent is very ill and then you're you're taking care of your children and you're also taking care of your parents and and just the whole story there about you went out to Georgia to see them and then the snowstorm comes in Mm -hmm. and you can't get back to your children at this you know, Christmas time and a birthday is there as well. And can you talk about a little bit about the frustration? You don't have to tell the whole story. Yeah. But I mean, I just remember, I just remember thinking I have, I feel like I have children in both directions. Like I have children back at my house who are my actual children. And then I have my parents who are in a moment of crisis and like any of us, and I'm not infantilizing my parents because they are getting older. They are so much cooler and smarter and everything than me, much more mature than I am. But in a moment of crisis, we all kind of become children, you know? So they were in this moment of crisis where they were, you know, my mom was sleep deprived. And you know, one day when I was at their house helping to take care of my dad, she walked into the kitchen to make lunch and she turned on the burner of her stove. I mean, she hadn't slept in days and she turned on the burner, went over to wash her hands, took the paper towel, set it down next to the burner and walked out of the room and the paper towel caught fire. So just as I walked in the room, this 
torch was going on their kitchen counter and I knocked it into the sink with a metal spoon. But, you know, I, I just kept thinking, I've got kids in both directions. Suddenly my parents are children. My children are actual children. I cannot be in both places at once. And it just felt so out of my control. And also just so exhausting. Like I just kept thinking, how, how do people do this? How much longer can I do this? And luckily I have so many friends who have, you know, been through this and people I could talk to on the phone that were like, crisis doesn't go on forever. Yes, we are all getting older. We are all going through things and it's, you know, something will come along next, but you're not going to be in this moment forever. Time will keep moving forward. And that, that was reassuring to hear. I think the sandwich generation is something we all relate to at this point because we are living longer, which in turn means that our parents in many instances are living longer. So now you've got children that are kind of leaving the nest and parents who kind of their nest is on shaky ground, I guess you could say. It's yeah. (laughs) It is. One's trying to get independence and one doesn't want to give up any independence. Uh, I used to be, I used to be such a cynical person. And I, you know, when I was younger, I was always looking for, I don't know why I was like this. I enjoyed finding snappy ways to make fun of people. I was just cynical. And the older I get, the less cynicism means to me. And I know that I probably in some instances come across as just so earnest in a not cool way. But, you know, that story you referenced where, you know, somebody walked up to me and said something snide about my outfit. And I was just like, why, why, why go through the world looking for ways to knock down people who have found some little thing that makes them feel joy, you know, a dumb little skirt that put me in a good mood so I could go to a work party at night. Why are you going to make fun of it? Why, why, why go looking for ways to knock people down? We are all getting knocked around constantly (laughs) anyway. Let's just... Be nice. I know. Yeah. It's true. Nicer. Mm -hmm. And I think as we get older, we care less about those opinions. So it's, it's actually kind of a nice thing. There's something that shifts in your brain when someone says that to you, as you get like in my twenties, that would have sent me into a tailspin. Oh my God, what's wrong with, what did I do? Do you know, like what now I'm like, Whoa, you're having a bad day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it gets, it, it comes back to, you know, the story about the woman screaming at her kid on the quad, it, you know, I could make fun of that, mm-hmm. but I, I find myself, the older I get feeling empathy before I feel other things. And it's what I want it again. It's what I want people to feel for me. It's what I want people to feel, especially for my loved ones out in the world. I want the world to be a kind, forgiving, open-minded place. And so that's what I want. I want people not to go around knocking each other down because my people are out there. That's right. And I, it's so funny. That's, that's where my little brain bargaining happens. Like, oh, I'm going to just let this thing go with this. Maybe that person delivered and they dropped something. If that was my child that was trying to do that job, I'd want somebody to do that for them. So then I start bargaining again. Yeah. <laughs> but I hope maybe somewhere out there in the universe, somebody's catching that. What do you hope people get from the book? I hope, you know, often with memoir, the way it is received is, you know, if you are like this person in the book, 
you will like this book. And I actually, as a reader, I don't feel that way. I love to read memoirs by people who are very different from me and have very different lives. So, you know, I kind of hope for two things. One, if you are like me, if you are an anxious optimist, somebody who feels a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry, but also really does look on the bright side and is always looking for things that give hope and and amusement and joy, then I hope you feel seen. And I hope you go, ah, oh, this, this feels familiar. It feels good to know that someone else is like me. If you are not that way, I hope you enjoy the book anyway. Maybe it will help you understand someone else in your life. Maybe it's just an interesting other perspective on things, regardless of whether you are anything like me. If you have anything in common with me, I hope that reading this book about being human gives you at least for the amount of time it takes you to read it, a feeling of human connection. Because I do feel like people are just starving for that right now. Just human connection. So I hope it feels like that. You closed off the book really, really well and summed up really what you were trying to say throughout the book. And if it's okay, I'll just read a a sentence or two from the very ending. And you said, there will always be bombs and we will never be able to save everyone we care about. To know that and to try anyway is to be fully alive. The closest thing to shelter we can offer one another is love. And that I think is really encapsulating not only this beautiful memoir that you wrote, but where we are today in the world with these bombs constantly dropping on us. And every day you don't know what's happening, but if you can give people a little grace and and understand that, that everybody's stressed out, then maybe it makes someone's life or someone's day a little easier. And I think your book just beautifully portrays that. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for coming on Thank today. You we so really much. appreciate yeah. it. We want to make sure that the listeners know that the link for the for Bomb Shelter is in the show notes and that you can find it at any bookstore, Amazon. Of course, you get it the next day on your Amazon. And thank but you. But you could also go to, what is the, the website? A local bookstore too. Go to a local bookstore. Uh, I, you know, that's always great. And now I'm drawing a blank, but during the pandemic, I kept ordering books. Oh, bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. Yes. Go to book. If you're not going out, go to bookshop.org and find a local bookstore and put it in there and get it from them. They are lovely. And then I'm, I actually, hopefully, maybe seeing, depending on how things go this spring, I will be going on a book tour. Okay. And so there are a variety, depending on where your listeners are, there are a variety of stores across the country where I will have been and will have signed copies. So um, if you want to go to my website, marylaurafilpot.com, you can see where I've been and they might be able to send you a signed copy. Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee yes. always has signed copies because I live right near there and I can go sign things. So that's a spot where you can always get a signed copy or a personalized one if you want one personalized for somebody. Yeah. And if you're ever in Nashville, make sure you go to that bookstore because it is fantastic. And if you do a book reading there, you will see us in the audience. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. it. Thank you so much, Mary Laura, for coming on and we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Mary Laura. That book was so... Just, I loved reading it. It just really connected. I really connected with it. And I think a lot of people will connect with it as well, especially midlife women. And we just love that you took the time to talk to us today. Make sure you check out Bomb Shelter by Mary Laura Philpot. And make sure you check out Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast. And rate us, review, listen to us wherever you can find podcasts. 
Also check out, um, we're on TikTok. That was a mouthful, Bridget. There you it go. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, we hope you have a great week. Make sure to go check out Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. It is out now in your bookstores and on Amazon. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Minnow Middle got you down. Crush your sugar cravings with delicious all-natural Bossa Bars for menopause. Created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the pause. Try them at BossaBars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. Mm-hmm.